Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. Randy here, joined by my guy TC. TC, how are you? Randy, I'm great. I'm pumped to uh, pumped to dive into Greensboro. Don't know a whole lot about it. I uh, candidly, I don't either. I'm I'm exactly with you. Before we get there, though, I want to thank uh, Whoop for sponsoring this episode of the Trap Draw. We've been wearing our Whoop bands now for. Gosh, almost two months uh, out 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 ahead of the curve of of the PGA Tour. No, um, no pun intended. No pun intended. Good, um, and it's you know speaking personally, it's it's been eye opening for me. I think what I get the most interest in checking it 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 tracks a bunch of different stuff, strain and all kinds of metrics. But where I really find it most fascinating, I think, is in the sleep statistics. I was really worried about you know my sleep performance and. Actually, I think I sleep a little bit better than I was I was um, thinking. My disturbances aren't too high, which makes me believe maybe I don't have the snoring, <laughs> sleep, sleep apnea <laughs> problem. Um, but you can, you know, of course, they show you a respiratory rate, which can be, can be, uh, not necessarily is a leading indicator for some of the COVID stuff. Um, but yeah, how have you found any interesting statistics on your end? I mean, I know you and I are both, we're both eight hours, guys. We need oh, our sleep. they got to be, like minimum yeah. eight. My wife and I, we got another baby on the way. So <laughs> I was going to say, it's tougher for you, I'm it's sure. Gonna be a, it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> like, I, I may need to take the whoop off <laughs> for those first couple of weeks because it's going to be a disaster. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, you guys have reached out to me before when I've been traveling Said, hey, TC, one percent recovery. Uh, we're we're both one percenters. We are. We yeah. I think we're the only one percenters. Um. So yeah, we you can we we've all like linked in this uh, group that you can check through an app. Uh. And so yeah, you can <laughs> spy is one word, but you know monitor people's yeah. sleep and strain. Um. Hopefully that's a little bit of a motivating factor. Our friend Poosh Daddy. Uh. After after he and his lovely wife Chloe had their baby. Um. You know his sleep numbers were not in a good place. We reached <laughs> out to him with a wellness check there. So yeah, it's been cool. It's been, uh, I'm not sleeping well this week. I'm in like the fifties as far as recovery goes. And it's like, you know, I haven't been stretching. I haven't been drinking enough water and I've been on my phone too much at night. So the, the tying it to water is a huge, that that's been an eye opener for me too. And it's, it's something I think I should know and you kind of do know, but until you actually see the numbers and think about, okay, how much water did I drink yesterday? Uh, you don't have that solid correlation. So uh, right now, listeners, if you're interested in, in the Whoop band, uh, head over to whoop.com. That's whoop.com. You can use the promo code TRAPDRAW, one word, TRAPDRAW at checkout uh, to receive a discount. And we thank them very much for sponsoring the TRAPDRAW. And now on uh, to Mr. Jeezy. Thank you very much, Mr. Jeezy. TC, let's just get right into it. 
Mea culpa's from San Francisco. I think we got a few. I mean, the merch star took over. The merch, he, he I was think like. we were guests on his podcast. He, yeah, we were Tom Hanks, and, and the merch star became the, the captain, which I saw him on Twitter was like, yeah, I would have talked about all this stuff, but they didn't ask me questions. I'm like, Neil, we, we couldn't ask you questions. We didn't have a chance. He, he totally hijacked the podcast. <laughs> uh, first of all, um, you know, I'm going to apologize on Neil's behalf. Ridge, or actually, this is on my behalf. Ridgewood, <laughs> not Ridgefield. I got Plainfield and Ridgewood mixed up. Okay. Uh, That's big of you to apologize. You know, so yeah. I, I'm sorry for that. Um, another thing, just, you know, Rochester folks are absolutely riding for Wegmans. They have not, they have not left me alone. They're loud and proud. It's crazy. Um, uh, update for Neil, the Caldecott Tunnel, the one that he was talking about in the East Bay, mm-hmm. uh, actually has four tunnels, not three. So they oh do my not, gosh. they no longer have to switch traffic in one of the tunnels. Okay. So he, he, he I think we'll, we'll both, yeah, and we'll both apologize on behalf of him. Yeah. And then the bridge that I referenced, uh, it's the Benicia Bridge where you can see the, the U.S. fleet, like the, uh, oh, sure. The retired sure. fleet yeah. in there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you know, there was a lot of people, um, you know, saying so. Neil Neil got both sides. He uh, a lot of people reached out, uh, especially via the refuge and Twitter, saying just just like how bad the bridges is that that course that he was talking about. Yes, yes. Um, they said that he he wasn't nearly even uh, harsh enough on it. Um, but also they said you know Neil got into the uh, you know typical tech bro commuting down to Silicon Valley. And you know what? I'm going to defend Neil a little bit. He lived well, it's up disgusting. at McAllister he's, he's and He's gentrifying. Baker. He's what's wrong with no, Neil all was, of San Francisco. Neil was doing it right. He went to the spots. He went to the neighborhood spots, the dojo, his his billiards place, all sorts of under-the-radar bars and restaurants. Foot um, massage places. Yeah. So I think he was, you know, he was in the gritty parts of, of the city. Um, so, you know, I don't want to hear any, any, any issues there. Um, I apologize. I didn't mention Uncle Juice. Mm. Uncle Juice is of a native of San Francisco. That's a big oversight. Uh, Galileo High School, Portrero, or Potrero Hill, I think, neighborhood. Um, Willie Mays set him on the right path at a young, you know, he was he was running around being a bad guy in high school, and actually Willie Mays set him on the right path and, you know, turned out well for him. Um, Think of what would have happened had Willie Mays not set him <laughs> exactly. on the right path. We didn't mention Willie Mays last week. Uh, Willie Mays, you know, <laughs> The say hey, uh, just a stud. Uh, yeah, he is. He, he maybe the goat. Maybe maybe the goat. Uh, I want to shout out Jaime Diaz for his wonderful piece, uh, two two part piece on Golf Channel about the amateur golf scene in San Francisco back in the '60s, um, and also just the city championship at large that's still still going strong in San Francisco. Uh, people were frustrated that we didn't talk enough about restaurants or food. Uh, you know, during these COVID times, it, it kind of bums me out. Right, I've been to, been to a lot of great places in San Francisco, uh, you know, from Slanted Door, Gary Danko, um, all sorts of places in North Beach, uh, Burma Superstar out in out in the Richmond or Sunset District, you know, all sorts of places. The Bourdain episode's wonderful on San Francisco, um, but you know, overall, it's just like I just get depressed because I know all these places are struggling like crazy right now. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And candidly, I don't know any of the food and restaurant scene in San Francisco uh, outside of House of Prime and my terrible, terrible experience there uh, with, with, with the waiter who, um, who who came at me for, you know, it's just a little bit of pink. Um, 
But uh, I, I think, yeah, I, you know, people were, people kind of latched onto some of our football uniform talk. Yeah. I, I thought, you know, um, we were pretty aligned there. I think you went Chargers. I went Ravens maybe for, for a I, fifth I don't pick. Know what, I mean, I, I know the all black Ravens. The, the all black cool, at night, you know. But I, I don't, I really don't like when their, you got hacks their whites and their, I don't know. I don't like some of their other jerseys. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a mean look. Uh, I love the Raiders the, jerseys, the, love the Niners jerseys. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big Dolphins guy, jersey wise. I, I, cool I struggle stuff. with the with, with like the powder puff blue, and I think the Chargers get a little too cute there too. I almost the Chargers like, do get way too cute. Uh, yeah, um, the Rams need to clean it up. The Rams could have one of the best. They're doing all this, this faded color stuff, right? Just, you know, just just keep it clean, yeah. keep it streamlined. Uh, so we had that going on. I'm a, you know what? I'll ride for the Browns too. I think the Browns have dope uniforms. The Browns. <laughs> Yeah, I, the orange and brown is so ugly. It's but. so good, it's bad. Or it's so bad, it's good, right? Yeah. Um, I want to call out the Titans for just being an absolute disgrace. Those were... Now, the darker blue is a, such a, a step in the right direction, but those unequivocally were the worst uniforms, I think, in sports. Yeah. The, they're, like, the last few years, the, the color schemes. I think the Patriots have pitiful uniforms. If yeah. they went back to the throwbacks, the throwbacks are the good. The old helmet was, yeah, yeah, was awesome. The Broncos... Uh, need to go back to the D with this. I don't know if that's their full time helmet now or not. Maybe they did go back to that. Be good. Who, who could know. say? Like, there's a ton of everybody's got good alternate uniforms in the league. Like the Cardinals have a cool black jersey. Um, the, you know, a lot of people came in talking about the Eagles and the Giants and the Cowboys. I'm good. I'm I'm out on those jerseys. Um, I think yeah. that I think you know the Chiefs are probably underrated. Just classic. Sure. Sure. Bears. Like as much as I hate to say this, the Steelers, Steelers uniforms are, are pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um. There, there are, there actually are a number of good, good uniforms. I feel bad we didn't. Uh, Alden Smith. We didn't have Neil tell the story about when he saw him up at, uh, up in Napa, uh, <laughs> at the vineyards and, uh, oh, yeah, and then just, just, just we absolutely pr- crunk getting in his car and driving. I was gonna say, we probably didn't need to. P- uh, pile on poor, poor Alden Smith. <laughs> um, we apologize for not mentioning Mike Singletary. Yeah. Can't, can't win with him. Can't do it. <laughs> can't do it. Um, uh, Jim Tom Sula. Too. Jim Tom Sula passing gas at the, uh, at the press conference. Uh, Frank Gore. We apologize for, you know, Frank Gore. This is, this is a Frank Gore house. This is like that. That's a legitimate apology. Period. I'm yeah. sorry. For, period. Point blank. Yeah. Big Frank Gore fan. Yeah. Um, one of the more remarkable careers in all of sports, I think. Yes, without question. Uh, we didn't mention the cucumber. That's uh, a big oversight. Colin that, Kaepernick. Yeah. We the, call him the cucumber because he looks like the cucumber from VeggieTales. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's that's a big oversight. I, I will go so far as to apologize for that. Uh, and then Glute Activator got, got after us on the refuge. Um, he said he was coming at, at Clay Thompson. He came at Neil for, for liking Draymond Green. Uh, and then he, but... In in positive news, he came after Aisha Curry for her cookware line. He good says, good cookware. No, terrible cookware. Oh, <laughs> bad cookware. Yeah. Okay. So, have you heard of Pyrex? It's, I've I've heard a lot of people talking about Pyrex. Pyrex. Is good stuff. Yeah, that's yeah, what everybody that's says. Like, yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about an arboretum in San Francisco because the whole freaking city is an arboretum. I was gonna say it's it's everywhere. The yeah. trees. That's what makes. That's part of why it's like probably my favorite city is yeah. you just go anywhere and it's yeah. like, oh, that's a sweet tree. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got, uh, you know, we had some people, you know, say 
Not, not enough East Bay, Oakland, Berkeley talk. This was a San Francisco pod. This wasn't a Bay Area pod. This was a San Francisco pod. I, and I like Berkeley. Yeah. Do, do you remember that Cal? I think they were playing Tennessee and all the protesters were up in the trees <laughs> that, that one game. Sick. That was a highlight. I love that. Um, this is – I'm I'm sorry we didn't get to Berkeley. Um, but I think that, that probably does a good job covering it. I think um, so. I think, you know, the one thing we teased, and I, I think we should just get right into it, is TC. What, we've been monitoring the Three Gorges Dam oh, in, yeah. in central China. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, watch the choke points, right? Watch the choke points, I think, is, is the, the mantra of do you wanna, do you wanna, going forward in 2020. you want to fill the folks in? I would love to fill the folks in. Um, well, let's start from the beginning. The, the Three Gorges Dam, if you don't know, uh, it's it's a uh, probably one of the biggest sociological ecological uh, projects in the history of mankind. Um, it's it can be seen from space. It's it's a dam that has dammed up the. Uh, I, do you know how to pronounce this river? I don't. Yang Yangtze. Yangtze, I think. Yangtze River. Um, the Yangtze, the Huai, and the Yellow Rivers. Uh, so. Anyway, just some quick stats. The reservoir, 181 meters above sea level. Uh, it sits. It's uh, 2,355 2, meters in length, the dam. Uh, the normal reservoir water level is 175 meters, uh, and it's got a it's, – it's the largest hydro project ever built. So I, I'm just reading – I don't know what any of this means, TC, but I, I guess its capacity is like 22,500 megawatts. I'm I'm guessing um, it's the mega dam. It, it it is truly 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 the mega dam. Uh, controversial project from the start. Displaced millions of people. Uh, has been an ecological disaster with landslides. Um, <laughs> that it's in China. You know you never know what's what's fact or or you know state media. But anyway, current problem: huge flooding. We got a huge flooding it's been going on. Raining like crazy for months. Yeah. Um, we the the integrity of the Three Gorges Dam has been called into question, uh, and I think what what caught everybody's attention specifically was an official state uh, media agency admitted that part of the structure buckled slightly due to pressure from the surging floodwaters coming in. Uh, now, you don't get that much from from the Chinese state media, so that they were willing to say that, uh, I think caught a lot of people's attention. Now, this is where things th – this is where my guy on Twitter uh, – what's his name? At man underscore integrated. This is the guy watching – telling us to watch the choke points. Got to watch one of the, the One choke of the best points. threads of, of the year. I, I sent this to you and I – yeah. It, I, I Take this with a huge grain. So I don't even know this. This could all be made up. I have no idea. I, I don't know how to verify this, but it's fascinating. And we might get detonated by the – by the Chinese government, <laughs> exactly. even talking about it, I, the trap draw might be pulled from pulled from the Chinese markets. I don't know, but if this dam breaks, here's what's going to happen. So you're going to have a hundred meter tall wall of water will rush out at more than a hundred kilometers per hour. So in 30 minutes, the uh, the city of Yi Chang and its four million residents will be engulfed. In one hour. Ying Zhao, and I apologize for just totally butchering the pronunciations of these Chinese cities, and 5.7 million people will be swept away. In five hours, the major industrial city of Yiyang, with 5.5 million people, will sit five meters underwater. 
in 10 hours, Wuhan, which of course has been in the news lately, uh, 11 million people there will face six to eight meters of flooding in all their major industrial and port zones. In 24 hours, Nanjing, Shanghai's neighboring city, will see its port crippled. Uh, and now this is where our, our guy, Man Integrated, really gets into it. So the Yangtze River Logistics and Manufacturing Complex comprises 46% of the volume of the largest port on Earth uh, since all the cargo flows through Shanghai. So failure of the Three Gorges Dam will annihilate the entire logistics infrastructure of central China. Why is that a big deal, you might be asking? That's a great question. The NLU Pro Shop needs to get stocked. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and in addition to that, the Yangtze River Economic Basin has a GDP of just by itself of $6.5 trillion U.S. dollars, which represents half of China's overall GDP. Uh, as China represents 28% of all global manufacturing output. That means more than half of... The uh, more than half of that, so about 15% of the world's production would go offline in 24 hours if the Three Gorges uh, Dam fails. So uh, I, I think it's it's also become an important military target. I know Taiwan, India, Japan. You know, could they strike the dam? Uh, or or if the dam falls natu fail, fails naturally, Will could the blame Chinese it on blame somebody? it on somebody? Exactly, TCD. Now you're asking the right questions. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Atman underscore integrated on Twitter. Uh, he's telling us to watch the choke points and I think we need to listen. Exactly. Uh, another dam, uh, update the, uh, Ethiopian great Renaissance yeah, Tell me about dam. that. I don't know anything about that TC. Um, they, you know, big, big dam project damming up the Nile up at the headwaters. Um, Chinese are involved there too. You know, they're doing all sorts of investments in, in Eastern Africa. Uh, but really, you've got uh, uh, good news on that front. Good news. Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia have come back to the table. They're, they're negotiating again, which that's, is huge. That's fantastic yeah. news. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is a big, big point of national pride for Ethiopia. It'll help secure their water supplies, generate a ton of electricity for the Sudan. So, you know. Good things all around. Egypt's piss because you know it's it's gonna it's gonna hurt their water supply. Of course. So um, dams fascinate me. I don't understand them really. I <laughs> I don't know how you make them. Uh, but but uh, you know I, th I think we're gonna continue monitoring the situation. It's sure. all we can do. For sure. Um, you want to talk about Greensboro? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think yeah. Perfect perfect opportunity. Have you ever been to Greensboro? Have not. You know I have been to Greensboro. Really? Guilford College. We used to play them when I was at WNL playing basketball. The Guilford Quakers. We used to make a trip there each year. Uh, I had two pretty good games there in my two years. Uh, that's the only time I've been to Greensboro. I don't really know anything about it. I think we have a great guest, uh, author Jim Dotson. We're going to talk to him. He's a Greensboro native, golf writer, uh, has seen it all, has been many places, but uh, calls calls Greensboro home. A couple, uh, couple notable either residents or you know, natives of Greensboro, Keenan Allen, Chargers. Nebish. One of my favorite, Can't play for favorite me. receivers. Can't play for me. Uh, Rick Dees, the, the uh, radio guy. Yes. Uh, he's from he's from Greensboro. Uh, John Isner. Oh, the tennis player. Yep. There you go. Um, let's see, Daughtry. I, I saw that. Yep. He lives there. Um, I got one for you. Yeah. Guess who went to high school in Greensboro? Ricky Prohl. Uh yeah, besides Ricky <laughs> Pearl, yes. 
Eric Ebron. The shittiest tight end in the, the room? The shittiest tight end in the room. Gosh. Yeah. That's a commission special. Nickname. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. Uh, Nicholas Sparks, the author, lives in Greensboro. I know you're a big fan. Um, a rapper, Ski Beats. I don't know who he is, lives in Greensboro. Um, Loretta Lynch. Tory Holt. Former attorney general. Tory, yeah. And his brother. Yeah. <laughs> Terrence. Danny Manning. Uh, one of the sad, maybe the first moment when I was growing up that I realized, like, man, sports are soulless when Danny Manning got traded to the Hawk. They traded away Dominique Wilkins and we got Danny Manning back. Danny Manning <laughs> sucked. <laughs> he was such a good college player, though. Um, yeah, uh, Dolly Madison, James Madison's wife. Carl Patterson. <laughs> Sergeant Patterson. Lives there, I went to high school there. Unbelievable. You know, Unbe he's a wolf pack. Hot Carl. Uh, Edward R. Murrow. That's right. Uh, and uh, gosh, I, I was shocked looking at the, the famous people that either from Greensboro or live in Greensboro. It's, it's definitely punching above its weight. Joey Cheek, the gold medal speed skater. Uh, I, I know you keep Huge close tabs fan. on that. Huge yeah, fan. exactly. Uh, well, let's uh, let's let's get to our interview. It's it's the author Jim Dotson. I'll I'll give a little biography of his on the other side. Frank um, Lucas, too, the drug dealer. <laughs> I was going to say Curly Neal, the Harlem Globetrotter, little ball handler. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Hey guys, real quick before we get to our interview with Jim Dodson about Greensboro, I want to thank our other sponsor for today's episode, Herbal Active CBD. Herbal Active, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V, offers a wide array of CBD-infused products from balm to water-soluble drops to mints. I know TC can't stop talking about the Key Lime mints. Those are his favorite Uh their products contain 99.5% pure CBD. They are 100% THC-free, meaning they're legal across all 50 states. And right now, listeners to the Trap Draw can receive 20% off their purchase from HerbalActive.com using the promo code TRAPDRAW20 at checkout. So head on over to HerbalActive.com, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V.com, Check out all that they have to offer. Use the promo code TRAPDRAW20 at checkout for 20% off. And we thank them very much for sponsoring this episode. All right, on the line with us now is Jim Dotson. He is a native of Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, he is a writer and author. Uh, he writes and edits a number of newspaper and magazines. He has published 10 books, including A Golfer's Life, co-written with Arnold Palmer, the book Ben Hogan, An American Life, An American Triumvirate, Sam Snead, Byron Nelson, Ben Hogan, and the Age of Modern Golf. He also, uh, Jim, I found this interesting. You were given the Order of the Longleaf Pine, one of North Carolina's most prestigious awards. I was. Uh, I'm a little, uh, I'm, proud of, I'm proud of that, obviously, as a, as a native uh, son. But uh, the Donald Ross Award meant I mean, almost an incalculable uh, thing to me because I think only one other writer in the 70 year history had won the Watt Roth Award. So that's, that was from my colleagues in the, in the superintendent's association. Very good. Um, well, let me start. There's, <laughs> there's no good place to start, but. What a list on the yeah. Longleaf Final Award. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. Maya Angelou, Oprah, James Worthy, Dean Smith. Um, 
you know, Rich, I knew them. They Rich, were they were great guys. They were great. Folks. Richard Petty, Michael <laughs> yeah. Jordan. Rich. Now listen, Richard Petty. When I was a cub reporter at the Greensboro Daily News, this is 1976, bicentennial can year. Remember the red, white. You guys are too young to remember the red, white, and blue golf guys, garbage cans, but it was a big year. Uh, I got this big job at the Atlanta Constitution Sunday Magazine, the oldest Sunday magazine in the country, uh, where Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind, worked. And I was in my last reporter. It was, I'd been out of school six months, and uh, I, uh, I was sent out to talk to the king of NASCAR. And so I drove out to Level Cross, North Carolina, which down there they talk like this. It's almost like the IQ dropped 400 points. You know, it's just <laughs> unbelievable. He is the sweetest guy. He was running for county commissioner, his nose into politics. And he couldn't have been kinder, nicer, drove me all over and, and took me for a spin in his famous car. And uh, we sat on the tailgate of his truck out as he was feeding his cattle. And he told me, well, I hear you're going, son, I hear you're going down to Atlanta. That's a big town. You know, he said, you get lost down there. And I said, I said, well, you know, I'm really thinking I'm ready for this. My dad was a newspaper guy. I'm media guy and I'm really excited about the topic. So I just got one thing to tell you, boy. He said and I said, What's that? And he said, Don't forget your raisins and I looked at him. This was when a commercial called the California Raisins for Raisin Brand were on T V and I <laughs> thought he meant the California Raisins. So I said, Yeah, I eat them all the time. He goes, No, son, I mean the people that raise you up. That's that's who <laughs> raisins is <laughs> How long were you at the so AJC? I've never for? forgotten my raisins. Huh? How long were you at the AJC? Oh my gosh, I was there. I arrived in se- uh, early 77 and I stayed till 83, almost seven years totally, and uh, covered every corrupt politician in Dixie and <laughs> every uh, criminal boss. Uh, you know, I <laughs> said, uh, I burned out and moved yeah. to New England uh, and actually turned down a job at the Washington Post, which I couldn't believe because that was my dream, and went to work for Yankee Magazine, the old New England magazine, and moved to a dirt road in Brattleboro, Vermont. And here's the best part. Because all those seven years I was in Atlanta, I played golf one time. And this is the home of Bobby Jones. That's how hard I worked. And I wrote about this in my new book, The, the, the Range Bucket List. And I got to know um, uh, some old friends of Bobby Jones. Literally the last week I was there, he took me out to see East Lake and it had barbed wire around it. And I wrote a little story about this effort to save it. And then I moved to New England. And the first thing I did was buy myself a secondhand set of used Hogan irons. And I started playing golf in earnest on this nine-hole course in Brattleboro, Vermont, where, where Rudyard Kipling played when he was spending a summer in Vermont the year he wrote the, uh, the, uh, the Jungle Book. So, you know, it all comes full circle, right? And then I stayed there 20, 23 years and had a family until I moved back to North Carolina. You know, by the way, I, don't li- I live in Greensboro. I, we moved up to Greensboro four years ago um, from Southern Pines and Pinehurst. I just, I, my magazines that I edit are down there. But I, 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 you know, I only go down once a month. But I, I loved it. I was there. We lived there ten years. My wife and I. She's a vice president of college, the college there, and we, um, and we moved up to Greensboro four years ago, which is my old home turf. And don't get me started on Greensboro. I know a ton about it. Well, we want to get you started on Greensboro. And where I want to start, I found three nicknames for the city, uh, and I'm curious which one you use. If if people use any of them, I found a nickname: uh, Tournament City, Gate City, and the Borough. Yeah, tournament town is, is was bestowed on Greensboro by the when the Southern Conference morphed into the ACC, uh, the Atlantic Coast Conference. They they made Greensboro their headquarters. Greensboro built a coliseum in the early late '60s that was the largest arena in the South, 
and they've just uh, it's just expanded constantly, and it's still I think maybe the largest in the South. Um, and the ACC eventually moved here. And for I mean, when I was a kid in high school, uh, uh, we used to wear our transistor radios tucked into our shirt and listening to the ACC tournament, which was six blocks away at the Coliseum. You could have never gotten tickets to attend, and you know, with Wake and Carolina Duke. Uh, NC State. Uh, it was really fun. It was a rock and rolling time. Uh, the ACC now, you know, I think partly because of the the way college um, eligibility works. You know, you can these players just go for, go to one school for a year and then they jump out or they go to the NBA, and uh, it's it's changed. But Greensboro was the home of the ACC. It still is the, the headquarters of the ACC. So they called it Tournament Town. It's on all the. That's one one moniker. I don't believe I've ever actually used it. Um, I was a big fan of the, the heels, and uh, but uh, the Gate City is a more interesting title. Um, so Greensboro settled um, after the Civil War in a bit. It was it goes back to actually it's one of the oldest cities towns in the South. Uh, it it was begun by Quakers who came down the Great Wagon Road uh, in the late middle 1700s. And moved into what was called, they called it Guilford, Guilford Town, well, Guilford Courthouse at the time, where the famous battle, the third bad, big battle of the Revolutionary War that turned the tide in favor of the colonies, the American colonies. Uh, basically, Cornwallis got one, uh, ran into Nathaniel Green here, and two weeks later, he surrendered, he surrendered at, uh, at Yorktown. Uh, so Greensboro is notable for that, but it also, uh, it grew by the 1800s, uh, it became a because the Quaker mentality was to welcome, and their doctrine was to welcome anybody here. The inner life they believed every human being was valuable, so there really wasn't any prejudice at that time, um, and, and and they welcomed all kind of people here. And among those who came were Eastern European Jews who just immigrated to Philly and New York, and they came down and saw opportunity in the agricultural and mostly in the in the textile business, which was rudimentary. And a guy named Caesar Cone came down, and he got—he was originally selling canned food, which just was kind of created in about 1870. The first cans of food you could you could you could you know sell canned food at that time. And he he was a drummer across the South. He sold it on the road, and he ran into a guy who had created a, hot, a kind of a cotton duck white material, uh, and he loved the idea. It was very durable. Farm people wore it, used it, and Cone had the idea of dyeing it blue. And he created a company called Cone Mills that made the first uh, blue jeans. And this Greensboro became the, the blue jean capital of the world. Bluebell, huh. Lee jeans here, uh, uh, everything, everything except Levi's. Is, 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 this is where it was born. This is the birthplace of blue jeans in America. Is that, I, I think Wrangler's still headquartered there. Is that, is that correct? It is, yeah. Yeah, they're owned by the people that own North Face. And, uh, but they're all, they're all kind of bond, they're all connected. Yeah, Wrangler has a big building downtown. And, you know, Greensboro went, uh, it's always because of its Quaker orientation, it has more diversity than any south town in the city in the south. Um, it also was the birthplace of the civil rights movement with a sit down at the wall at the, uh, Woolworths in 19, the famous sit down at Woolworths in 19, February 2nd, 1960. I know because that was my seventh birthday and I was there. My newspaper dad took me out of school to go downtown and stand on the corner and watch it. That was considered the birth of the nonviolent civil rights movement. So it has a lot of uh, history. Um, it had a lot of very famous people who came through here and were born here. But the point is that by the time Atlanta was growing, 
and Washington was growing. Now we're talking 1890. The railroad ran the link, uh, Washington and Atlanta ran directly through Greensboro. And it was called the Gate City of the South. Uh, uh, Richmond was, was probably a bigger city, but it was kind of, it, it didn't, it didn't have the claim that Greensboro did. Greensboro became, because of its openness, became a city where they were like, by 1920, there were nine movie theaters all downtown. It became a city that was really booming. Um, so it's always had it's always had a very because of the textile industry here. You had cone mills that started up, and JC. Uh, you had uh, uh, at least six different textile companies. Haynes is over. Haynes is over in Winston Salem, 25 miles away. Uh, Cannon is down in um, 25 miles south of here, 35 miles south of here near Salisbury, and, and, you know, it, it became a, a, the textile capital of the world, too. And then, lastly, it had cigarettes and furniture. So, Greensboro was a very wealthy town that had, um, that also had a half, a, probably almost a third of, to, uh, to nearly a half of its population was African-American, and it always has had very good relations. It's always had a very kind of li- liberal personality that is in very strong contrast to the, to the rest of the state. Uh, it's, it's that, that's the thumbnail history, but it's a pretty interesting one. And it makes it a very, there's also 50,000 college students here. There's eight universities and colleges here. So it has a real cosmopolitan, it's slower. It doesn't want to be Raleigh, which is the boomtown of yuppies and, and the new tech, techies <laughs> of the world. That's where every, everybody that's 27 year old wants, wants to move to Raleigh, which is 80 miles east of here. And Charlotte is the banking capital which the, and, and sucked up the big franchises. I think maybe the luckiest thing that ever happened to Greensboro is they didn't put a major league baseball team here. Huh. We're, we're happy to be the hoppers, you know, the, the single A, double A baseball. You know, it's really fun. Uh, as far as the, the, the research triangle, is there a rivalry of sorts between Greensboro and, and Winston-Salem you know, or a, High Point or – well, High Point, Greensboro, and Winston are, they call it the Triad. Triad, okay. And I, and I think they claimed that name before there was a triangle. But, um, and they have their university, Duke, Carolina, NC State. Um, um, yeah, the, the, the research triangle caused the, tri- caused the triangle to explode. And so, for example, they're just, they haven't even begun to get their hands around the traffic problem there. It is a nightmare to get through Raleigh at this hour. Um, Charlotte, very similarly, has blown out its wings and it's now spread into South Carolina. Uh, it has always had huge ambitions. It always, as we used to say in Atlanta, it always wanted to be Atlanta. And it's, it's pretty well on its way to doing that. Um, it's a nice city with great, you know, both Raleigh and Charlotte are nice cities with old neighborhoods. But they're both, they're both really arrogant. <laughs> you know, uh, Greensboro, Winston, High Point, we, first of all, all three of Winston, Greensboro, High Point, when, when the recession of the 80s, 88, 89 hit, the furniture business went offshore, and that was High Point's bread and butter. That's, that's, that's the furniture capital of America, and they have the big, like the, the golf home show down in Orlando. They host the, the, the big uh, furniture show twice a year in the spring and the fall. That thing went to, New, uh, went to Las Vegas, and, and these, these greens, and they lost tobacco. Reynolds is all tobacco. If you've ever smoked, you know, Salem or, or Winston cigarettes, that's, that's Reynolds tobacco mm-hmm. um, in Winston. And they, when they lost the big tobacco suit, uh, they sold out and uh, tobacco disappeared, uh, furniture disappeared, and uh, 
you know, it's just been a, uh, it's, and then uh, textiles, all went offshore. Burlington Industries, the largest textile firm in the world, was based in Greensboro, and it disappeared about 15 years ago. So, so Greensboro and High Point and Winston really went through uh, hard times. And yet there's something about the fact that people, these have been designated and studies have shown Greensboro especially is the most livable city in America. And by that, they mean it has all the things you want and a lot of what you don't. Uh, it's easy to get around in this city. It's, it's very kind of low key. Um, again, all the college students give it a kind of a cosmopolitan air and it's very relaxed. And people who move here say they can't, you know, they really love being here. Greensboro uh, sounds like, sounds like Fort Worth of, uh, of North yeah, Carolina. Good. That's a great, that is a, I, and I know because I spent three years in Fort Worth working on the Hogan, big Hogan biography. That is exactly, a, that's a really great analogy. Uh, Exactly, compared to Dallas. That's, uh, that's a wonderful and, and apt uh, description because it has a very similar, people are very, love the city. They don't boast about it. You know, they don't, they don't spend a lot of time, uh, you know, crowing about it. It's, it's hurt. I mean, in some ways now they're starting to, you know, Greensboro quietly build all these highways around the city and they have a, a wonderful airport here. If you're ever flying in North Carolina, fly into Greensboro because it'll, it's the easiest airport in America to get through. Uh, and they have quietly courted, I know there's a big, you know, every year they talk about there's going to be one of like Toyota was going to open a manufacturing plant here and they love the social aspect of it. Uh, and then somebody recently outbid them. I think they went to Alabama and said, um, North Carolina is growing. It adds about, you know, it adds about a quarter of a million people a year. And, uh, it's, uh, I keep hoping they just moved to Raleigh and Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, we have a ton of golf courses around Greensboro. I mean, the GGO is one of the grand old tournaments of, of the PGA Tour and has a, has a really august history. So yeah, we don't normally talk about the golf on this podcast, but I think this is probably probably one of the few that, that we'll actually want to because I think, like you said, it is one of the more underrated, uh, storied tournaments of the year. 1938, yeah. I believe, was the first year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. America was coming out of the recession and a man, an old man named... B.J. Benjamin, who at that time was considered to be the richest man in America, actually, I live in the neighborhood he started called Starmount Forest, and two blocks away is Starmount Forest Country Club, where he, old man uh, Benjamin, built that club. And at that time, it was a public course, and um, the, the JCs were eager to get back to the city, back on their feet. You know, from the in the heart. it was really sort of coming out of the depression, and they started the tournament, um, and it was one of the first. I think there were eight that were ahead of it um but they all started there in about 37 38 and um except the master started of course you know in 30 36 i think and it's late afternoon my brain's foggy <laughs> yeah, um I, I don't know jim so what that yeah, sounds yeah, good no, it did it did <laughs> 30 35 it was opened in 35 um that was the shot heard around the world that gene saracen hit uh on on 15 the the, 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 the whole you know he made it in two but um the um, so the GGO, the Greater Greensboro Open, was born, and it attracted. It was the week before the Masters, so you know these were touring pros in those days, literally by car, touring pros or train. Most of them had their own cars, and they doubled up. They were really a vagabond culture of a mix of club pros and trick shot artists, and and uh, it was you know it was called the, the Professional Golf Bureau run by a guy named Fred Corcoran, and he was the natural promoter. 
and he loved Greensboro. His pro, his brother was the pro at Greensboro Country Club, a Roth course. That, that's the other thing. This is kind of the take the, the 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 fertile crescent of Donald Roth courses. There's about I think there's about 25 in North Carolina, or 30, uh, maybe even more. But they're around this area, just Greensboro, High Point, Winston Salem, all the way down. And, and Piners is only 65 miles down the road. I think there's something like nine Donald Roth courses. Over in Burlington's one. Um, so it was, a, it was a, although the irony there is that this was a Wayne Stiles course at, at, at Starmount, uh, who was kind of an unknown designer, um, who, if you look up his Vita, he, he did some wonderful courses in the Midwest and places like that. Uh, but is he that, came, the, he is that the stain, is, is, uh, the Wayne Styles of Styles and Van Cleek? Or is yeah. That, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've, I've played, so a, I played a couple of his up, up in uh, New England area as well. Were they hard? Uh, God, one of them, South Shore Country Club. Yeah, very hard. <laughs> yeah, and the thing about Starmount, it's probably the hardest golf course almost in North Carolina, in my opinion. A lot of rolling big hills and turn, you know, sharp turns. And uh, Anyway, he old man Benjamin hired him, and they put the GGO there, and it was there. It was there really um, through Sam Snead won it a record eight times. He came to love Greensboro. He was his, it was his other home, uh, and he... He, in those days, when they opened up Sedgefield, which was a short time later, or actually, I think Sedgefield was still first, they wanted it, They wanted the tournament there. So what they did was they alternated. They played two rounds at Starmount, and they played two rounds at Sedgefield, and then they reversed, you know, w- which one would be the final Sunday. Uh, and it had, a, you know, a, a who's who of golf won it. I mean, uh, you know, Gene Saracen and, and uh, Byron Nelson Hogan finally broke through he didn't win gto win the gto yes they actually did win the gto he won it won it the week he won it like eight seven days after he won his first tournament in 1940 at the north and south in pinehurst and this is an interesting little moment uh he had been struggling and was told his wife he was going to quit the tour he'd been trying failing for like three years some four years to make it on the tour he'd borrowed money from friends he'd worked summer jobs in texas uh, uh, had been a kind of a pro at a down and down at the heel club in Fort Worth. And he told Valerie, he was going to, if he didn't make it in Pinehurst, he was going to leave Byron Nelson. If you recall, this is, now this is 1940. So 1939, his buddy, his former, his former, uh, Glenn Garton caddy friend, Byron Nelson had won the U S open in Pennsylvania at, at, at uh, Philadelphia spring mill. And, and Nelson signs a huge, con- huge contract with McGregor. And Ben is really obviously burned up by jealousy. And he's, he's only had, I think he's had one second place, which in those days paid nothing. And he goes to Pinehurst in the spring of 1940, a week before the t- two, 10 days before the, the tournament scheduled North and South, which in those days was one of the biggest tournaments. And he practices and practices. And Byron shows up a few days before the tournament. And says, look, here's these two brand new drivers, one of that, that they've made for me for McGregor, and I want to give you one. And he gives Ben one, and Ben takes the other one instead, because I'd rather have that one. Well, that's a classic, because he was sure Byron was trying to give him the crappiest driver. <laughs> uh, turned out to be his good luck charm. He won the tournament. It was his first win. And then he went drove to Greensboro, which is, as I say, 60 miles through the pine trees, and played the Greensboro Open. And um, it snowed. It was early. Remember this? It's early April now. It's early, end of March, which is the week before the Masters. And he wins in Greensboro. Um, they delay it a day, and he wins in Greensboro. Then he drives to Asheville, and he plays the Land of the Sky, which was the third tournament. And so, in like 
16 days, he won three, wins three times. And I think he only missed, and I'm going from memory from my book, I think he only missed seven, seven greens in regulation on that. On that. That's and a, the, news, the newspaper people believed he was, it was Hagen because they'd never heard, you know. So there's a funny story. The Greensboro Daily News, that John Durr, the legendary CBS broadcaster, was an old dear friend of mine. And, and John tells the story. Of course, he got in his jalopy and drove through the pines to report to the Greensboro News, you know, write the story. And he sends his story down excitedly to Ben Hogan. Hogan has finally won. It says Hogan wins the North and South. And the typesetting boys downstairs were convinced it was Hagen, so they changed it to Hagen. He thought he John had misspelled it, so you know he almost got robbed of his first tournament. But that was that was that that was a momentous moment, and that changed Ben Hogan's life, frankly. Let me. It's also famous. Um, 1961. I'm curious if you remember anything about that year with uh, Charlie Sifford becoming the first African American golfer to play in a Southern uh, sanctioned right. PGA Tour event. That was in Greensboro. Yeah, and he was encouraged to do that by uh, both the civil rights folks because of Greensboro's reputation, right? And, um, and it's, um, it's, it's tradition of welcoming people. And, you know, if you went to the GGO in those days, you saw a lot of African-American black people watching the game. Greensboro's always had, I mean, for instance, there's a, there's a, um, believe it or not, the, the, what is, was called the minority golf course. It's a public golf course over in East Greensboro was built by, designed and built by Perry Maxwell. Perry Maxwell did, you know, uh, Southern Hills in, 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 in Arkansas. And you just, there's about 35 amazing golf courses in America. That Perry, he's one of the greats. He's listed, you know, in the same breath as Donald Ross. Um, the Midwest Associate. for uh, huh? The uh, Midwest Associate for Dr. McKenzie. Exactly. And he, he loved that course. And it's still there today. You can go over there and, and I play it. It's a, the, uh, actually, the Wyndham folks have adopted it and used it as their first tea teaching school. And it's really great. It's a fun. It's not like it was originally. It's still the same routing. They, it's only nine holes. <clears throat> but the point is, in those days, there was a strong, and there was a strong desire of, of black, blacks to play golf in Greensboro. And I'll tell you, it became part of the, uh, the cultural landscape when um, a local black dentist who was very well-to-do took five of his friends to the, that course and they wouldn't, the, the assistant pro wouldn't let them play. So they filed a major lawsuit. It went all the way to the Supreme Court and basically they won. And um, uh, it was, it was fully integrated. Now this was years before official in, uh, the, the civil rights act. This was in the early sixties. It was right after the Charlie Sifford incident. And of course, that happened. What happened there was there was a death threat phoned in, and this doesn't surprise me. Uh, you know, I as a, before I became remember the dark years. I'd like to bet Atlanta covering Klan rallies and and every corrupt politician. I, I knew a lot of those old boys back in the hills, and they're here. Of course, they're everywhere in America. Uh, but but they uh, some nitwit called in and, and threatened his life, and they posted state police, and and uh, you know he played and uh, without incident. Um, it, 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 I think it, it, it was an unceremonious beginning to the integration of the PGA tour, but it, uh, certainly was an, an important moment. And then the other name I think associated with the tournament is Sam Sneed, who yeah. <laughs> seems yeah. like, eight times. yeah, he, he had, he had a pretty good career if you only counted Greensboro winning it eight times. That's, that's really true. And he loved Greensboro. As I say, it's, it's just down the road. I mean, it's about 
it's about two hours from um, Bath County, Virginia, where he grew up in the mountains. And he, he loved to come down here. And the mayor here was a guy named Carson Bain, was his buddy, and Sam was a crazed fisherman. So they would get, he'd come five days early, they'd fish, and then he'd play. He always, and, and Greensboro, again, same thing. It was on the, it was on the major road south, and it was on the railroad. So people would, it was a perfect hopping off place. There were a lot of restaurants, and it was a very lively city. So he, he would, uh, Sneed loved coming here. And I'll, I'll tell you a little funny story. This, I think, is in the, the range bucket list, because that book is all about these 30 years I had, I was fortunate enough to, to have in the golf world. And, uh, at Golf Magazine and Departures and write four books that became books of the year. And I never imagined that happening, including Final Round. Um, anyway, it's in a range bucket list. So so when my Sam called me up, he's in Final Round, which is a book about taking my dad back to England and Scotland to play golf at the courses where he learned to play during the Second World War. And he was dying at the time. And that book came out in 1997. And I went on the book tour and it was, it was a big, big seller, bestseller. It's uh, and it was the first book of the year award I won. Uh, it's a love poem to sort of our fathers and the people who bring us to golf. And it's a funny book. So in it is Sam Snead. Cause I went to see him to write about him for, for golf magazine and we played and we got to be friendly and he's a character. He's a total character. So he calls me up. Um, he calls me up right after that. Arnold Palmer asked me to write his memoirs. So, um, uh, and again, this is all in the, in the, in the new book. Uh, I, uh, I, he calls me up and he says, Jim, it's Sam Sneed. He said, I read that book you wrote about your daddy going to, you know, Scotland, England and stuff. He said, I like that book. He said, uh, I, I think it's time to write my autobiography. I want you to do it. And I said, well, Sam, uh, I'd be honored. Uh, the truth is, um, you've written your autobiography three times, I think. And, you know, uh, <laughs> And then he, he just didn't even, he didn't miss a beat. He said, you know, I, I, I had, that's true, goddammit, but I ain't done living yet, so I wanted to tell more stories. And I promised him I'd do that. Now, here's the fun, here's the postscript that's really pretty funny. So now, if you grow up in Greensboro, you know all about Sam Sneed Lore. And if you know about all things, Sam Sneed Lore, you know he had a different woman in every every port. He had an arrangement, actually. Uh, they, they would arrange, for, and he made that deal with his wife, Audrey. She hated the PGA Tour. She didn't want to leave White, uh, White Silver Springs. Uh, and uh, uh, rather uh, um, um, where they lived in, in the little over the hill hot springs, and uh, she didn't want to leave town. She's a country woman, so he they made a deal. And she, his son, told me flat out. He said, and this is an American convert. She said, "Sam, you can do anything you want. Just don't bring anything or anybody home." And he took her at her word. And uh, so, uh, so I come home. It's 1990. And the final round was a bestseller, and. I finished Palmer's book and it's out and it's on the bestseller list. And I, 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 I come home to take my mother out for her. My dad had passed away and I come home, I stop off in Greensboro, uh, principally to see my mother for her, take my mother to dinner for her 80th birthday, but also to see John Durer down in Pinus because I had been asked by the, the estate of Ben Hogan to write the authorized biography of Hogan. I didn't think I was a really great match for Hogan. I'm not one of those Hoganistas that worships, you know, the wee little light men. I was much more of a Palmer kind of guy because I'm always in the woods flashing the ball out like everything. <laughs> so uh, I go, I, anyway, I go to, I pick up my mom. We go to this wonderful restaurant called Lucky 32 that's uh, very popular in town. And we walk in and who is sitting in the booth directly ahead of us with two attractive women, middle-aged women, but Samuel Jackson's name. And he waves us over and he says, uh, I, you know, I wasn't sure he knew who I was or remembered who I was, but he, we walk over and he, 
first thing out of his mouth. He says, well, hello. He said, Jim, I just, I, it's a good thing we ran into you. I seen your book about Arnold's out, you know, and uh, I figured it's time we get started on my book. What do you think? And you had to get going. Now, my mother is this cute little former Miss Maryland. She's a 19, she's eight, adorable at 80 years old. And I'm, I'm, I'm standing there with her and I'm thinking, how do I tell Sam Snead that I'm on my way to Fort Worth, Texas to talk to his leading rival in life about writing his book? Well, I'm, I'm sort of stalling, him and hawing, and I go, Sam, this is my mother, Janet Dodson. And, uh, you know, she, she scored the GGO and, and, uh, and he looks at her and gives this old catfish smile and says, Oh, I know your mother. Now, if you grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, that is about the last thing you want to hear Sam Snead sing. <laughs> oh, so, I don't even know where to go from Yeah, that. I don't know whether to ask a follow-up on that. <laughs> yeah, well, it could be that this beautiful scuffling I have is, is I'm, the, I'm the love child of Samuel Jackson Snead. You never know. But, but my mother, my mother, God bless her, she doesn't even miss a beat. She says, Sam, guess what? Guess where Jimmy's headed? He's on his way down to Fort Worth, Texas, to talk to the family of Ben Hogan to write his autobiography. What do you think about that? And, of course, he gives me that long, cold stare of, uh, that he could do anybody he didn't like uh, or if he's unhappy with you. And he said, here's exactly what he said. He said, well, isn't that special? That's just really special. <laughs> I said, tell you what you do. You go on down to Fort Worth, Texas, and you talk to Ben Hogan's little friends. And you find out he's the best GD golfer in the history of the game. And when you want to know what the hell really happened, you come up to Hot Springs and I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> we shook hands. I promised him I would. And he died the next year. So I was deep into the Hogan book. So I wrote American Triumvirate, honestly. He, it tilts greatly towards him because his story is such a wonderful, interesting, and complex. He, of the three, Nelson. Uh, Sneed Hogan, he was easily the most complex. Hogan was close second. He had a, he had a, he, uh, but Sam was a real, if he liked you, he treated you like as smooth as a Spanish ambassador. If he didn't, it was like the wind off an Arctic ice flow, you know. He was a character. Question for you Why did they, uh, move the tournament from Sedgefield? Well, uh, Four Stokes opened, and it was kind of your basic nouveau riche in the country. Green's the size of parking lots. Uh, I, I don't even remember who designed for so. Uh, Ellis Maples. You know, it had, yeah. yeah, right. It was a maple. So there's the connection to Pinehurst. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, he's a character. I know him too. Um, I never liked the golf course when I first saw it. It, it just struck me as kind of one of the bland, um, you know, uh, suburban America golf courses that were built in the 70s. Um, and somehow the, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, you know, now there's kind of a deep appreciation. There is a deep appreciation for these vintage courses, right? That's, I'm writing, currently writing the essays for the Walker Cup next year, and they're taking it to Seminole uh, next year. That's a, that's, that's a, um, for the first time. I mean, Seminole is one of maybe the most iconic golf club in the world, really. Uh, and um, it's never been there. And so these ne people now, golf, golf, golfers and golf readers and golf people generally are beginning to really understand the value of these beautiful old golf courses that, that, that could go harken back to the golden age. Um, and yet at that time, you know, Robert Trent Jones started building five sets of tees and he wanted big flash flat bunkers. And he, uh, he, he changed the whole style of golf in the fifties and the sixties. And, and by the seventies, you were having people build these these golf courses with gigantic greens, 
uh, they didn't want the small little little vest pocket greens that were famous for the on Ross's courses. So, uh, uh, and, and they wanted the tour was you know full of life and color and lots of double knit flags and orange golf balls and uh, you know it was a different different age. Um, so the JCs gave them the, gave them the, uh, the the franchise. They moved out there, and what what happened there? And this this is about the time I left. So I leave in '76 to go to Atlanta, and then New England. And you know I stayed connected here. My family goes back here to the 1800s. I've got relatives everywhere. Uh, so I mean I stayed connected to Greensboro. But what was interesting about the GGO? It kind of preceded uh, Phoenix as the rowdy stop before Phoenix gained that reputation you know i'm talking about drinking and partying mm-hmm. yeah and Green, Green, greensboro was a big party a big party in fact there's a the reason jack nicholas purportedly never came here again after after uh probably about 70 73 or 4 when it moved out there there's a par three on the it's now played on the front side i believe but it was the, they reversed the nines it was on the back side at that time and it's, a, it's got an amphitheater around it, kind of a, all around, and people would cover the hills. And let me just say, in those early days of the GGO, it either snowed or rained. The azaleas were out and the dogwoods were in bloom, but it either rained or it sleeted or it snowed. And it had rained all week, and Jack, and people drank, drank, drank. They, they had beer, and you could, <laughs> and Jack was putting on that green, and he was somewhere near the lead, I think, and I don't remember which day it was of the tournament, but there was, he, you know, this is Arnie land. And I'll tell you a funny story about Arnie. I asked him once in his, when we were working on his book and then one morning in his, in his, um, his Latrobe, um, office in his workshop, he was restring, he was re-gripping a club. And I asked him, I, you know, and this is after a year of conversation. I said, Arnie, what tournament besides the, the PGA championship did you never win that you wish you had won? And he gave me what I called the look, uh, which is kind of a cross between a, constipated eagle and a very unhappy schoolmaster <laughs> and said and said shakespeare you don't know and i went no i don't know and he says oh geez you only grew up there and i went holy cow you mean greensboro well it makes sense he had he was a wake forest guy uh he came to the ggo he almost won the ggo twice blew it um i, w- I watched him blow a three-stroke lead on the 17th hole 16th hole when you're on the three two holes to finish and he uh you know, he, he loved this place. So Arnold had a huge following here. I mean, they turned out in just biblical size galleries to follow him in the reading mall. So um, the, uh, the year Jack, this happened, and people, did a lot, they did drink. I mean, it was party central. It was the same crowd that went to the ACC tournament. You know, it was, it was a big sports town. And uh, Jack, as Jack was putting, some guy, a heckler, the top of the hill and like banana yellow double knit slacks and a yellow shirt starts heckling Jack and he looks up and the guy slips his feet slip out from under him and he starts sliding down this muddy hill in slow motion and people are just laughing out loud and this guy he slides all the way to the bottom and he gets up and he like does a power turns around and gives a power sign to the to the crowd and he's definitely plowed and Jack called it the beer can open after that and said he's never coming back and he never did gosh oh I, although really i, I mean that. you know obviously that was that was that was arnie territory but i think everywhere was kind of arnie land right yeah and so well in 61 when he was at the open in that oakmont 
they were almost death threats against Jack. He was Fat Jack in those days. And, yeah. You know, he was a rookie and he was had the temerity to be leading the U.S. Open, which I think he won that year. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's yeah, it's that whole dynamic. When I, mean, I explored it in some of my books, it, it's really interesting. I mean, uh, aren't you know the difference was perceived by the public, and and this is true in Arnold's case. He really was a man of the people. He was a you know a blue collar pro who wasn't even allowed in the club shop club clubhouse in La Trobe. Uh, son of that and a working class kid who played, who actually went to Wake Forest on a scholarship. It was an athletic scholarship to play. They thought he was going to play football. Uh, he ended up building a golf course, helping build a golf course. So, you know, Jack, on the other hand, was, uh, was a wealthy, uh, or a certainly extremely well to do, uh, pharmacist son who had Jack Grout, Hogan's old pal, uh, teach him how to play golf. He was very tutored. Arnold never had a lesson in his life. You know, so, the everyman got, Arnold put brought more people into the hit game than anybody in the history of the game from 1958 when he won his first Masters um, to 1960. You could almost say 64 when he won his last Masters, but certainly by the by the end of the 60s, certainly by about 72, uh, he tripled the size of participation in golf in America, and there was a major golf boom to build golf courses, public golf courses, because everybody wanted they all loved Arnie, you know. He, he just had something that was ama- amazing. And, you know, Jack um, Jack didn't kind of shake that until he started really winning. And, uh, of course, he also had that, hi, spiky voice, you know, and uh, <laughs> the, public, the public didn't like that. And uh, he's a wonderful man. He's really mellowed beautifully. He's now taken over the mantle from Arnie as the kind of grand old man of the game. Um, but that was a golden age, and I was fortunate enough to be a kid through it. So, you know, um, it's been fun to, to watch. As, as far as, was there a, a kind of a genesis or, or somebody that, that really spearheaded bringing the tournament back to Sedgefield? I think that was 08. Yeah, Bobby Long. Uh, he's a, Bobby Long is, a, uh, is an investment guy who's been very, very successful. And he grew up in Burlington, which is just 15 miles east of Greensboro. And on playing on a rock course. So he was really steeped in the whole culture of golf and he steeped in the GGO. He went to NC state. He played on the golf team. So he loved golf and he really, it was really those of us who loved golf in Greensboro were really sad to see it. It became, it first became the, let me get, make sure I get it right. Came the Chrysler open Mm -hmm. for about four years. And, you know, it was at that time when, and this is, I think is to the detriment of golf and Arnold and I had many, conversations about this over kettle one um <laughs> when they the tournament began, realized they could sell their name to people uh and just make uh windfalls of money right naming it the my favorite is the um the cialis open which was a what? few years that was ago. the western open right yeah yeah I they, so. they renamed yeah. it the cialis open which gave new meaning to the classic phrase soft phrase never up never in and uh <laughs> you know it's uh it's it, it to me that symbolizes the horror of that. You took away the regionality of golf tournaments. You know when they began in the '30s, and I wrote a lot about this in, Tri- in Triumvirate and even Hogan. Uh, tournaments were you were real community events. You had local uh, dentists would show up and have put up a tent and offer free uh, teeth examinations. You had doctors that gave they they had medical teams that would give you tech, check your blood pressure or give you, you know, uh, aspirin free. 
they had they were a real community event. And so after the war, however, people started realizing, you know, um, corporate America got a hold, and that really happened in the late '60s because of Arnold's success and the tour. And then suddenly the commercial world said, well, you know, we could we could attach our name to this. So they originally put put their names associated with it, and then of course. The GGO was destined to become the, 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 the Chrysler Open. Maybe the poorest, the, the least successful Chrysler dealership in town was Chrysler. But it, uh, the Chrysler people, it was Iacocca was president and they wanted a name. So it stayed that. Went out, that's when it moved out to um, the Forest Oak. They figured it needed a new, the old GGO needed to be upgraded. So the JC still ran it, but it became the Chrysler Open. And I think it stayed that for about six years, seven years. At which point it morphed into my favorite, the Kmart Open, um, and uh, that's uh, you know Fuzzy Zeller won it a couple times, and it still attracted a good crowd of young, good players, a lot of good players, in fact. But I just couldn't stomach going to Four Soaks. I hope that doesn't hurt the feeling of the people out there. But I just it just <laughs> it seemed like every golf you know country club, bland country club in America, it didn't have anything like the character of these old courses. And it stayed that way until it really did. They moved it to late summer, not just it's coming up next week, but it, they originally, I think its last slot was like either Labor Day weekend or that was its final slot. And, you know, that's the ante room to, a, to oblivion for a tournament. You know, by the, end of, by the end of August, kids are going back to school. Nobody wants to, you know, you don't want to play golf. It's hot. You know, you've had all the majors are over. Um, Bobby Long came along and resurrected it, and he called um, uh, Steve Holmes, who was the chairman of Wyndham, and he said, you know, there's a deal here. Just, he arranged it. And I had I, I, I paid, a very, I paid a tiny, 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 tiny part in this, uh, and not that part, part of the story. So they came in, and for seven years, they, they pumped money, and they created, they decided smartly, Bobby was the architect of this, and he wanted it to be a very family-friendly tournament, So, because obviously Wyndham has hotels and resorts and stuff uh they made it a real a real family event and they moved it back to sedgefield which was the mm-hmm. smartest move they could have made and they built a wall of champions that has every kind of great pga name on the wall from you know dave eichelberger to to uh to, to arnold palmer and uh to sam sneed and ben hogan and nelson and they all they're all are there and they made it very very friendly um you know kids missions free Lots of great food at reasonable prices, and it, it's been a real joy to watch it gain strength. So when it was approaching its sixth, after six years, Bobby asked me to go to New York and, as a native son, see if I could talk, have dinner with, with Steve Holmes, the chairman of Wyndham, and taking some of my books, and I did, and we went, I forget, we went to a wonderful restaurant. I don't remember where it was. I usually know New York, but I just, I flew in literally. We had this great dinner. I did my hometown boy routine, gave him the book, talked about what, what, what a great loving golf loving town Greensboro was, is. And they, he thanked me and they re-signed for another, I think eight or 10 years. So, um, and now we're only, in, we're in like year four or five of that. So, um, awesome. it's, it's, it's huge. They draw a really great crowd. They've made it very easy to go to a golf tournament. You know, there's no, it's just really fun. And the players love it again because it falls right before the end of the, mm-hmm. it's like the last points you can get for the, for the FedEx cup, you know? So it's, it's really a popular tournament. It's been fun to see it resurrected. Uh, and the Wyndham folks are fantastic. I thought it was awesome. And Bobby Long. When Tiger mm-hmm. showed up a couple of years ago, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
unexpectedly. That was cool. Yeah, it electrified everybody, you know, because he was coming coming off of a tough time, and 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 uh, I think he I think he maybe thought he could move anonymously into town, and nobody would know. <laughs> but uh, it oh my god, the buzz is everywhere, yeah. you know, and uh, you know it it's got its favorites, you know. Uh, there, there's so many uh, young players who who've won here. Seve won his first tournament here. Here's another little detail. I forgot to tell you about Starmount. In 1940, I want to say 52, or it was 51, uh, the first, the predecessor to the LPGA was started in Greensboro by a phys ed teacher and a woman, and and, and, and um, uh, the, 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 the lady pro from Southern Pines. And uh, they held the first national women's professional championship at Starmount in, 19, I think it was 1951. Uh, and the next year, of course, you had the, the LPGA formed and they started their, the national, you know, the, the women's U.S. Open went there. But it was the first, uh, the first national women's Open was held in, at, at, at Sedgefield. And it, I don't even know the scores, but it was a, uh, it's a brutally difficult course. So Wayne Stiles can be remembered for the, I can't seem to break 80 there. So, um, uh, it, it drives me crazy, and I, I belong there. We're, we're honoring members there, so we play. I play with a group of buddies every every other Saturday, and it's really a joy to be back in my old hometown. Jim, I got a couple non golf questions for you, and um, the first one is why in why did Greensboro change the spelling of the town? Do you know anything about that? Like pre eighteen ninety five, they yeah I yeah. do. Uh, I wish they kept it, but if you look at it, Hillsboro in North Carolina. Is, which is even older than Greensboro, it dates to like 1720, kept their name. You know, a lot of what happened after the turn of the century with the automobiles and electricity and the thing, you know, by the 1920s, you have suddenly, you have telephones, you have radio coming along. Uh, these cities wanted to, there were actually big stories written uh, about the, the 20th century was the century of progress. So you had to sort of leave behind the, darkness of colonial and civil war years and i think that's that's that partly that informs part of it um i know a lot of cities around america chain got rid of the borough part of it and uh i think i you know i i joked i was doing a, on a panel a couple of years ago and greensboro has had a wonderful renaissance of artists downtown the whole downtown has been transformed and there's great taverns and restaurants and uh, artists all up and down the old streets it has more pre- 1800, uh, uh, it, was more, it has more 19th century build, original buildings than any city per capita in the South, including Charleston. So it has a, it has a, you know, it has a vibrancy that bases, is based on its heritage. So I argued that it should be, you know, we, we should go back to spelling it that way, but they're not, they're not going to change that. I think they think, you know, that was a, that's an interesting insight and you've raised and it's, um, that's what it, that's what it was called. And the other part of it, most people think it's named for, it's a city of gigantic oak trees, the beautiful, beautiful trees. Um, and uh, most people think it's the it's named for that. No, it's named for General Nathaniel Green, the Rhode Islander who was in George Washington in charge of his southern campaign who met uh, George Cornwallis at, uh, at, the, at the Guilford Battleground and, and technically lost the battle, but more British troops were killed. And, and it wounded them mortally, the British mortally, and they surrendered two weeks later at uh, Yorktown. So Greensboro was named in honor of, of General Green. 
we uh, we've we've discussed arboretums in other locations, and yeah. I, I know Greensboro has the arboretum. I want to ask you about that, but I also want to compare it to. I'm curious what the bog garden yeah. is. It, <laughs> it sounds like that's a nice botanical yeah. garden. It is. I walked the snake. Uh, this is the south, and after living 25 years in Maine, you know, and tromping anywhere in the woods, you could go. Only thing you run into there is a bear, a porcupine, or a, a lonely moose. Um, <laughs> down here. Uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's all forms of crawling critters. Uh, they're not crawling all over the place, but the bog garden is it's funny. It's part of the old, uh, remember I mentioned Mr. Um, Benjamin's estate. He, his estate literally was right very, I mean, a quarter of a mile, uh, through what used to be my, the back, we moved to, we bought a house on the same street where I grew up, which was kind of fun and we were restoring it. And behind this used to be all woods right to a, a road called Friendly Avenue, where there's a where there's a, a big shopping center, and that shopping center was built was originally wood, and just beyond it is the you know um, behind the shopping center is this last remnant of original Benjamin owned estate wood, and part of it is a bog. It's got lots of pools and it's beautiful, and I, I don't think any self respecting snake really wants to be in there. Because, I mean they're in there, but they don't want to be seen because it gets a huge. It's like the all world walk dog walking capital of the world on weekends and you know it's a beautiful little vest pocket uh it's a little bit like the boston commons uh in in, in the public garden in boston it's small but it's a beautiful place and uh and that the arboretum is the same way it's 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 on the other side of the neighborhood i live here and it's a big green space that the city greensboro because of i think it's because of the jewish families that came here that underwrote everything everything uh and it has the largest capital Jewish population now. And they're very civic focused. Uh, they bought, they built all the gardens. Greensboro has more, every neighborhood has a huge garden park next to it or around it. And uh, that's another thing that sort of separates it from Charlotte and Raleigh, which are very, you know, we're eager to build themselves into the next, um, you know, towering city of the South. Greensboro doesn't care about that. Um, and it cared about its garden, its, its, its the uh, livability of its of its streets, and so the arboretum is a. They took a what was a bunch of ball fields and a creek bed that wandered through, you know, a, a section of woods, slim section of woods, and they groomed it. They turned it into a spectacular arboretum that you can just wander, and there's all kind of Japanese pagodas and quiet places to sit and think. So, you know, and it, a lot of that happened when I left Greensboro. After I left Greensboro, so I used to hear about it from my mother, who worked on these gardens and. You know, to come home to Greensboro has been, I thought I'd never, once I'd taken the dust of this place off my feet, I thought I'd never come back. But it's been a joy to, to come back because I, I, I started a magazine called O. Henry, named for this famous short story writer who was born here who wrote The Gift of the Magi, which is maybe a story you know. It's the most famous of course, yeah. story. Yeah. He, he, was a, he, left here, he grew up here. Um, in fact, the house we live in, was owned by a woman who was his descendant. And O'Henry was a character, moved to, he left here at 20 to make his fortune, went to Texas, married a woman in Austin, got to, went to work for a bank, had a child, got, in, got arrested for embezzling money at the bank. In fact, he took the fall for the guy who owned the bank, went to jail for in Ohio for three, five years, and was wrongly accused, but changed his name to, uh, his name was, real name was William Sidney Porter, he changed it to O. Henry and started writing short stories. And within three or four years, he was the top writer in the world. His stuff appeared in 
Horace Greeley's uh, New York World newspaper and had gigantic uh, readership. And then he started, his short stories were appearing in the Saturday Evening Post and all those. And he, he became, his books were very famous. And he's, he's, he, he was famous for his O. Henry ending, which is a twisted ending. If you read that, if you remember the Gift of the Magi, the young couple's married and she felt she cuts her hair to pay for a gold chain for her husband's watch. Uh, he sells his watch to pay for a comb for her beautiful hair. And uh, I'm now giving that story away. Good heavens. You know, the ending, <laughs> uh, I think only 60 million people, 50, maybe 10 million people, 100 million people have read that story. So uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's a nice. And he, he became an alcoholic. He moved to New York City and he was world famous. And he drank uh, literally like a bottle of whiskey a day. And he would crank these stories out in, in like uh, an hour. Uh, and he, he wrote The Gift of the Magi with a kid from the New York world pounding on his door. And he was, you know, and he finally get, moved to Asheville and uh, he died. And, uh, you know, it, it's a sad, sad ending, like a lot of very famous people who gain fame. But he's a really wonderful story. So I named a magazine here called uh, Henry, and it's the Arts and Culture magazine. And it came out of one we started in Southern Pines and Pinehurst called pine straw and then we started a salt down on the coast in wilmington so we have this trio of sister arts magazines that have been really quite rewarding it's been fun for me to come home and do that you're a magazine magnate now <laughs> no no I, you know what i did i just designed in a way last week i told my guys after 15 years because i left the golf world i left golf magazine and departures in, right at the 2005 open at pinehurst because really the golf world was changing you know the, the papers were getting rid of their reporters and the, and all the all of my old colleagues, all you know, I've learned all this crap from, were all getting booted out or retiring. So I went. I started these magazines, and they're they're arts magazines. It's not stopped me writing golf books. You know, I've done. I think actually, I've done fourteen books in all. I've written. I'm the Seminoles historian. I've written a big book on Terra Edi, the number two ranked foreign club in the world out of New Zealand. Um, you know, I. I'm just finishing one on Eastwood Ho, the great New England course yeah. in Cape Cod. A wonderful place. It'll kick your teeth out. Uh, um, you know, so it's been a, it's been a wonderful journey. Um, and the golf world's sort of calling me back. I, it's funny. I literally, as I, I, I said goodbye, I said to my magazine, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go become emeritus or be the founding editor and I write a column and I'll advise and, you know, I've got a hand-picked editor coming in in early October. So she's going to go into saddle and, I'll write my columns and, and, and hopefully get back to writing my golf books. I have a big book about the golden age of golf I'm working on. So. I've got a lot of reading to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, like two or three of your books, I'm like already ordering them right now. So, Well, start with Final Round and then okay. try, try Deuce Sweepers and, and then go to uh, or the Range Bucket List, which is out now. And okay. it's, it's, I had That book is – people love that book, like Final Round, because it's very personal. And it's all these stories I never got to tell, some of which I've told you today. Uh, you guys. Uh, so uh, that that's a. I had a lot of fun writing that book. I had a. I had fun. Final rounds is very sweet and sad, but it's also very funny. I had a great father. I had a great sense of humor. So thank you. I hope you enjoy them. Absolutely. Yeah, and then I guess question for me. I'm from Atlanta originally. I grew up watching uh, or reading yeah. Furman uh, Bisher. Furman and, Bisher. Yeah. yeah. And uh, He's my mentor. Yeah. So yeah. so kind of how did you get from uh, you know being on the crime and politics beat to to getting back into golf? Well, honestly, uh, 
I was on the magazine. And when I say I wrote about every corrupt politician, those were go-go years. Ted Turner was taking his shirt off and waving it behind the dugout at the <laughs> Brave Stadium. And I think they won about nine games that year. Biff, the great Biff Pokoroba years. You know, who's ever heard of him? Uh, you know, Atlanta, but Atlanta was, you know, charging ahead. It wanted to be the next great city. It was, you know, this booming metropolis. So I, but I, uh, I wrote about a lot of different things. I mean, I didn't write just about crime bosses in the South, although there were a number of them, but there were Klansmen, there were unrepentant Klansmen in Alabama. Uh, I, I wrote, I wrote, I did write about them, actually. I, you know, these were magazine pieces, one thing. Mm-hmm. This wasn't on the newspaper. So you, 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 I, mean, I knew you were in Atlanta when you said the AJC. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, so I, I had the, my pick of the South to write about. I wrote about literary characters and, uh, you know, people who, uh, um, you know, who, who, who were important figures in the South and, 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 and were all over it. expatriate people. I'd go to see them in New York and California and stuff. So I had a wonderful job. I still have to state on how I got it. I mean, I was only out of college at the news and record here in Greensboro for, for nine months. And I, I did win an AP award and they said, we would like you to consider continuing. I was a miss, kind of a misfit. I mean, you know, I, my colleague on the, on the magazine, and there were only three of us as writers, said to me, and he was true, George, and he's like, I can't believe they would hire some guy, kid from North Carolina. And I said, you know, I can't either. <laughs> but I'm glad to be here. And uh, Berman Bisher took me under his wing. Of course, he was the sports editor, you know, of the journal, and he was a wonderful character. And I learned a ton from him, and he was a sweetheart. And a North Carolinian. I mean, he's from Hamlet, North Carolina. So, you know. And um, so I, I, I did love Atlanta. I, uh, I I didn't hate leaving it because it was the murder capital of America. The last two years I lived there, I lived at, you know, Virginia Highlands. And if you're, oh, yeah. and, as, and as I lived in the heart of it, I coached an all black baseball team to two city championships, which was really fun. And uh, you, you know how the culture is in Atlanta. I loved it. I mean, mm-hmm. Woody's stakes. And, oh yeah. Right there by uh, Grady high school there. That's right. My yep. kids, I took my, I made a deal with my kids. They were so unruly and crazy. They wrecked my old Volvo all the time. They were tearing up my apartment. I said, look, if you guys behave and you play well, I'll buy you milkshakes after every game we win. Well, the little suckers won. Didn't They didn't lose a game in two years. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so those are great memories. I've got a screenplay half written about that. Uh, they were called they were the, the, o- Oreo, the, the Highland Park Orioles, you know, uh, and so um, they were great kids. I've stayed in touch with a couple of them. So it's really amazing to think almost 45 years later, 40 years later, they're, they're still there. That's awesome. awesome. Uh, the Jim, I got one more question for you, and then we'll get you out of here. And it has to do with uh, I, we need to know your grocery shopping preference because I know the Fresh Market is headquartered in Greensboro. Yeah. But Greensboro yeah. is also home to the largest Harris Teeter in the country over at Four Seasons <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Town Center. So I, we, we got to know where you do your grocery shopping. Well, uh, I can tell you there's some very unhappy names some people call Harris Teeter. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it's called the Harry Blank with the beginning of the P. Uh, and um, and uh, I like Harris Teeter. Uh, I was dismayed when I heard it was purchased by Kroger. Oh, Jim, uh, Jim oh, don't, I don't, say, don't say that. Yeah. I'm a big Kroger guy from Cincinnati. Well, maybe they're better than they used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, you're uh, on you're on the right side of this argument. I'm I'm a I'm staunchly a Publix guy. The Kroger 
scene yeah, in Atlanta yeah, was bad. Yeah, Publix is making a big move in here. They just put a two, couple big ones up. One out in Sedgefield and, and one in uh, – two in Winston, and they've got, they've got one coming to Greensboro. Uh, Harris Te- I was sad when I heard that because Harris Teeter was a great chain. They were Charlotte-based, and, and, and it's still good. Um, um, but, yeah, no, I'm um, – I, 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 now, that the second biggest in their chain is literally – remember I mentioned Old Man Benjamin's Land was just a quarter of a mile from here? Mm-hmm. Uh, it sits in that stopping center, and it, uh, they call it the uh, Taj Teeter. <laughs> it's like all these super stores, you know, like Wegmans. They they try to do they do everything, and they do a nice job, I will say. So maybe maybe Kroger's better than I thought. You know? be, be careful yeah. what you say about Wegmans because we've learned because Wegmans the Rochester has a folks strong will, contingent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, and they're, it's an amazing store. I think they transformed the grocery culture in America. Don't you think? I mean, they did yeah. things. I married a upstate New Yorker, and she's, you know, I remember the first time she took me to Wegmans. I said, we want to go to dinner. And she said, let's go to Wegmans. I said, that's a bloody grocery store. She goes, what? Well, you'll see what I mean. <laughs> we did. And then we went to play golf. So I knew I love this one already. So. Oh, fantastic. Uh, uh, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Uh, the wonderful stories, your insights into Greensboro. This was a lot of fun. I know listeners um, will, will really enjoy it. So thank you very much. Great guy. You guys are lots of fun. You had, by the way, you had asked great questions. So what a what a fun fun afternoon it's been. Thank you. Well, we'll have to get you back on. I've got about fifty more to ask you. Just yeah. just, just okay. that came up Any- from uh, talking. So yeah. <laughs> anytime. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. Awesome. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you, Jim. All right, brother. All right. Well. See you. Bye bye. What a treat. Gosh, story. I mean, what a good story. I talked to him for four hours, man. I'm, I should. I want to talk to him about Maine. I want to talk to him about <laughs> grocery stores more. I shouldn't have brought up the uh, the Harris Teeter. I knew I shouldn't have gone there. He, but he detonated your ass. I know, not good. Um, all right, uh, TC. That's it for Greensboro. I hope everybody enjoys. And um, yeah, we're on to Boston next week. Last thing about Greensboro: three Swedish uh, past champions. Carl Patterson, Carl Patterson, Sergeant Patterson, Henrik Stenson, okay, and Jesper Parnovic, okay, and then uh, I believe there was a runner-up as well. You had uh, Freddie Yock, runner-up in oh uh, 2014. Oh my gosh! So you know, it's like the Swedish Swedish golf capital of America, I guess. There you go. Um, all right, uh, yeah, we'll. I think people will enjoy Boston next week's episode. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll keep that one a surprise. All right, see you later.